So today we have a very special guest. I'm incredibly honored to be able to talk with Brian Zond here. He's an author I've been paying attention to a lot. And that, to be honest, as a church worker myself, I listen to his sermons on Monday morning when they get posted up online. So thank you, Brian, for being here. This is lovely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, John. It's a privilege to be with you. Yeah. Uh, so I got a copy of When Everything is on Fire. That's obviously the topic for today. And I'll be honest, I actually was paying attention to this as you had posted it up online when you were hiking the Camino in 2019. Did I did I actually do that? That's I think amazing. you did. I, because I don't remember. <laughs> I remember actually reading the the titles for the chapters and thinking, "Oh my goodness, that's a lot of the figures that I'm currently reading as well." Yeah. And uh, it's always been a dream of mine to do the Camino as well. So I was hoping mm. to do it, but then COVID happened. Yeah, I understand. I hear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you, as I understand, you first started having the ideas for this book as a result of being on the Camino, but I'm guessing some things were percolating even before that as well. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I've, I've been really trying to understand our place in history, where we are, mm -hmm. the uniqueness of in which we live. And that's hard to do because it's like, you know, you're so close to it and you need some help to get a historical perspective. And one of the things the Camino does, I say that Camino, I, like everybody knows what we're talking about. Oh. So there's this ancient uh, pilgrim path known as the Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James. Mm. And the most famous route begins in Saint Jean Pied de Port, France, and the Pyrenees crosses over into Spain, and it's a 500 mile walk mm. to Santiago de Compostela in Spain that people have been doing for a thousand years. And, and it's had a resurgence of late, the last few decades. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife and I have walked the Camino uh, three times now. Twice on the Francis route that I'm describing oh, and once okay. on the Pacific route. But when you walk the Camino de Santiago, it is a little bit like a time machine in that you can sort of sense another time, another epoch. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the way we do it is, I mean, we're only walking. We don't move any faster than foot speed for the approximate 40 days it takes us to walk that 500 miles. Mm -hmm. So that's different. Uh, we try to keep, uh, you know, a lot of things to a minimum. But mostly you're passing so many churches that are, you know, 600, 700, 800 years, 1,000 years old. And we try to visit as many as we can because, you know, the Camino is just dotted with these churches. Uh -huh. And so we'll stop in. So you, you, you begin to sense, you can feel a time when faith mm. and God, mm -hmm. religion, Christian faith was at the center of society. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to over-romanticize the medieval period. You know, there was also superstition and bids for power in the church acting in ways that would not be Christ-like, etc. I get uh -huh. all that. Uh, but still, I do recognize there was a time when faith was assisted by the culture and time in which people lived. 
And mm-hmm. I was very aware that we do not live in that time. Uh-huh. That that to be a genuine person of faith, not just holding a theological opinion, but to actually have your life determined by faith. That is that that the orientation of your life and how you live is determined by your faith is something of a heroic effort. Mm-hmm. And we see people that that struggle and that find they reach a point in life where faith seems to be untenable to them. And, you know, sometimes this gets cast in culture war terms, which is completely and entirely unhelpful. And I don't want to do that. And I'm not a part of that. Uh, I say in the book, being angry at modern people for losing their faith is kind of like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something happened in medieval time that caused people to die of the plague, and something is happening in our time that makes sustaining Christian faith sometimes mm-hmm. uh, And so while walking that is, I was just, we were 200 miles about two weeks into this walk, and I, those were my thoughts. And I was thinking, if I were walking with someone who said to me, I feel like my faith is imperiled, I, mm-hmm. I feel like... I don't know that I can hold on to what I received as a child or at whatever point they began to actually have some sort of active faith in their life. And they began to say, okay, here's here's why, here's what's troubling me. What would I say to them? Oh, yeah. And this was my thinking. And then when I reached uh, Castro Haris and sat on that uh, little terrace and outlined the idea for a new book, that apparently I shared. I don't remember doing that. Although <laughs> now that you mention it, I kind of have a vague. I know I took a picture of it, just so I would have it in case I want to say it was in notes. your own handwriting as well. It was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not carrying a computer or anything. You know, walking the Camino de Santiago, a little notebook and a pen, and uh, and so I do remember taking a picture of it. I probably still have that, uh, but I didn't remember sharing it. But that's fine that I did. So anyway, in October of 2019 is when the idea for this book. Uh, and I, you know, when everything's on fire, uh, was conceived. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually start writing it, though. I mean, I did have a, a chapter outline that I stuck pretty close to, which is a little bit surprising. Oh, wow. And I didn't actually start writing until January. And so I'm writing in January of 2020 a book entitled When Everything's on Fire. And then everything was on fire. Absolutely, it was. <laughs> Within six months, the whole world is completely different. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so that's that's how the book was conceived. That's where it came from. Right. Now, I've read, obviously, many of your other books, and I've noticed a very strong pastoral response. I'll be honest, I met earlier today with a young woman, very kind, but she's admitted that she's going through her own form of deconstruction. And mm-hmm. as I was just encouraging her, I, I tried to list, here are some great books that you, it would be great for you to check out. Julian of Norwich was one of them. But then I also encouraged to pick up your book, this one, When Everything's on Fire, in like another month or two. Because she's right now in the midst of that deconstruction. But I feel like your book is for people that are on the way out of that deconstruction. They're starting to question the deconstructionism itself. And so right. I think it's a great guide for people that are on the way out of deconstruction. Would you would you agree? Is that who it's meant for? Um, I I would say the book is intended for people 
who are in the process of rethinking faith. Uh-huh. <laughs> For however you want to describe that. I mean, if you've read some of my books, and it seems as though you have, John, uh-huh. uh, you, you may have read Water to Wine, which is kind of a memoir. It's it's memoirish, I'll say anyway. Uh-huh. Of my own spiritual theological journey that really began in earnest in 2004, where there was a profound rethinking of how I understood God is revealed in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, people could look at that period of time, let's say 2004, 5, 6, and say, oh, that was BZ's deconstruction period. I would never have used that phrase. Mm-hmm. That phrase was not in vogue then anyway, so no one was describing it as that. Uh-huh. Um, but I still wouldn't have even reached for that phrase. I, I know the origin of the phrase. I talk about it a little bit in the book, the mm-hmm. second chapter on deconstructing deconstruction. Right. It comes to us from the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, mm-hmm. who is actually talking about deconstructing texts and that the text mm-hmm. has no fixed meaning or final meaning, and that as we deconstruct the text, we are looking for hidden agendas behind the text, things like that. Um, that wasn't really a, a, an adequate description of what I was going through, but I use the term in the book because it's just become the go-to phrase. Said, so I vogue. do refer to it. Yeah, I do refer to it, but... For me, deconstruction is uh, too much. It sounds too much like destruction to me. Absolutely. And and I want to I want to caution people. Let's that faith is precious, and let's not be reckless with it. Uh, we're dealing with maybe in the book I talk about. It's it's like a precious icon found in That's some right. monastery, some neglected, forgotten corner that is an image of Christ. But over the centuries, it's become covered with a patina of soot and ash and dirt and grime so that the image of Christ is nearly obliterated. Well, what you want to do is not deconstruct it. <laughs> you want to restore it. So you bring in a, 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 a art restorationist. Mm-hmm. And however they go about that, I'm sure that in the toolkit of the art restorationist, you will not find a sledgehammer or dynamite. <laughs> You'll find del- of course. And so I think I think now that being said, I also go to another metaphor where I talk about your theological house, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you it's in, it's it's important to make a distinction between Christ and the palace in the mind where Christ the King resides. That is in our speech and in our thinking. Um, and our, our theological house, you know, it's constructed and inherited however it is. I mean, some of it's our tradition, where we come from, the books we read, whatever. And we may reach a point in our spiritual theological journey where we realize, this was my experience, where we realize that our theological house desperately needs a remodel. Mm-hmm. But your theological house isn't one thing. It's not a one-room bungalow. It's a sprawling mansion with dozens and dozens of rooms. So some aspects of your theological house may be relatively untouched. Others may come in for some very severe treatment. In my own experience, it was, among other things, my eschatology that we could probably use the word deconstruction for that aspect of my theology. What, what is concerning, though, is I see sometimes people that have been within a 
strict fundamentalist kind of expression of Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Everything is tied together so tightly and with so much certitude that to rethink one aspect of their theology seems somehow to imperil everything. And I'm just Absolutely. saying it doesn't need to be that way. Mm. You can hold on to Jesus and everything else then becomes negotiable and you can hold on loosely to it. That's right. So when people, I've seen, I've seen people go through what is called deconstruction, mm-hmm. completely lose their faith. And, but upon further analysis, what it appears to me is that they, they'd reached the point where fundamentalism was no longer an option for them. But what they did was they just went from some, from one version of fundamentalism to another one. Yes. Uh, they, 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 they ditched the Christianity, but kept the fundamentalism. Now mm-hmm. you can't tell people that because they don't understand and they become angry. But uh, I, I think we need to be much more nuanced in this. So if we're talking about a critical rethinking of evangelicalism, well, maybe you need to understand that there, there's a whole lot of other ways of understanding Christian faith outside of American evangelicalism. Oh, That's yeah. just one narrow, very recent, very modern uh, interpretation of Christian faith that, you know, probably accounts for just the tiniest of of how historically Christian faith has been understood and lived. I actually, as a result of seeing a post from you, I started reading Sergius Bulgakov, which I'm probably mispronouncing yeah. his last name. It's hard stuff, but it's good stuff. <laughs> oh, it took me a while to slog through some of it. but. Bulgakov. Bogolkov is closer. I mean, it's it's like the next to last syllable is what's usually emphasized in Russian. Not that I speak Russian. <laughs> well, I was always Bogol- fascinated. I think the word is Eurodivie. The Russian word for saint is also the Russian word for idiot, which is an inference to being a yes. holy fool, which is right. lovely. That's a lovely mm-hmm. phrase. But, you know, I recognized as I was reading through this, you seem to be very influenced by many of the mystics. There are people that I had heard referenced throughout my time in seminary, but honestly, I was not taught them in seminary. I then went and looked them up and read them on my own time afterwards. And Mm -hmm. I noticed some of your words just now reminded me of the cloud of unknowing, which you already, that's one of your chapters, but there's a season to do learning. And then there might be a season of doing conscious unlearning that the logical brain at a certain point can only get you so Mm -hmm. far in faith. And that's where the mystery is. That's the paradox. And that's, honestly, I think that's where the mojo is. So a question for you is, who's your favorite mystic? Could you choose? Uh, well, I'll get, yeah, maybe, probably. Okay. <laughs> I'll get to that. But I, you, okay. you just reminded me because I had not thought about this. I mean, I've done a lot of podcasts and interviews with I've, the release of When Everything's On Fair, but I hadn't thought about this till till just now, that... What I was reading while walking that Camino in 2019, I mean, I just have a little Kindle because, you know, you, you're carrying everything. You don't carry like a oh, yeah. pack full of books. But I was reading John of the Cross and yep. Teresa of Avila, two Spanish mystics. Yes. So I was really also being immersed in that. But I, but my favorite mystic would be, we'll, we'll go with the English, and would be Julian of Norwich, mm. who, um, you know, she's interesting. She, I don't know if you know this. She, her book, Revelations of Divine Love, mm-hmm. 
is the first book by a woman uh, published in English. Mm-hmm. So in the English-speaking world, the first book published by a woman is Julian Norwich's um, Revelations of Divine Love. She lived at a very difficult time. She lived in the 14th century, which is, was, you know, if you're going to pick a time to live, that wouldn't be one right. you would pick. 1300s. Now, isn't that uh, the case that she probably had the bubonic plague? Oh, I think it's very clear that and she might did have recovered. That. And of course, most don't survive, uh, didn't then. But she did. But she hovered between life and death for some time. Mm. And it was during this time that she was in the liminal space, apparently, between life and death, that Jesus came to her in a series of revelations mm-hmm. that she much later, I mean, she, she's kind of like, uh, like the Apostle Paul, you know, I know a man who 14 years ago, she didn't talk about it for a long time, apparently. I mean, we don't know a lot about uh-huh. it. But much later, she wrote these series of kind of almost, almost like question and answer. I mean, she mm. would pose these questions to the vision of Christ that she's seen in her near-death state and then the response that was given. So it's a mystical experience, near-death experience. Uh, she became an anchorite mm. or an anchoress, one that is they're, they're essentially literally connected to a particular church building. I mean, they're like they just they never leave. They, An annex of the church. Yeah, they're supported by people that bring them meals and things like that, and often they would become then known for their sage wisdom, and people would come and for prayer or for counsel. And so uh, I think Revelations of Divine Love is, um, is worth reading. It's where, it's, it's from, it's where we get, and I, I, I use this line in probably all of my books. I just can't help it. <laughs> because it's just, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth oh. speaks. But in her 13th Revelation of Divine Love, she's asking Jesus if, if all of this suffering was inevitable mm-hmm. and somehow attributable to sin, and the answer is in the affirmative, but then, in according to Julian, uh, in her revelation of Christ, Christ says, "And all shall be well, mm-hmm. and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well." I can't tell you how deeply I resonate with that and oh, actually really. believe it, even if I look like a holy fool in looking at our world as it is oh, yeah. in this present. And still saying, all shall be well, and all shall be well, mm-hmm. and all manner of things shall be well. That's one of the few books that I've read multiple times. And mm-hmm. in 2015, I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And during oh, really? that, I actually reread some of the same mystics, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. Mm-hmm. So I'd walk all, all day, and at the night, I would read another 20, 30 pages until I fell asleep. And... I think one of the questions I would love to ask you, <laughs> what's that? We have some things in common, it sounds oh, like. Man. Absolutely. Uh, I would love to ask you, why do you think some of these figures aren't more well-known? The Teresa mm-hmm. of Avila, the St. John of the Cross, Julian of Norwich. What is it that well, we're overlooking let's them? Let's say, it, let's say it this way. They're not well-known in America. Now, in an increasingly secular Europe, I'm not even sure how well they are known there now. All right. But I mean, these are at least, you know, John and, and Teresa, these are saints. They're canonized by the mm. Catholic Church. Um, and I can tell you that in Spain, 
Teresa is very well known, as is Jonathan. Is that Paul true? As well, wow. Yeah, yeah, they're they're known. I mean, I mean, the average person might not be able to tell you much about what they taught and believed, but mm-hmm. they know their name. I, I think it is the it is the peculiar form of Christianity that grew up in America that is characterized by pragmatism. Um, I mean, American soil is not advantageous to producing mystics and saints. You know, you have the odd Thomas Merton, although Merton is Merton wasn't born or raised in the United States. He comes here, but, you know, born in France, I believe. Yes. And I think there's just something about the, the very utilitarian, pragmatic nature of America itself, but that also influences Christian thought and practice in the United States that is just Mm. not conducive to producing mystics and saints. And I mean, I I very much believe that. And Mm. so that's, that would be another aspect of being aware of the time and place in which we live Mm -hmm. and understand that. Well, I think I mentioned this very, I think I mentioned in the prologue that there is this kind of general casual assumption that Christianity is no longer present or very robust in Western Europe, and yet it maintains a strong presence in the United States. I don't see it as that way. As one who has traveled often and widely Hmm. in Europe, I would say that when I'm in Europe, I sense deep but forgotten, largely forgotten Christian roots. When When I'm here in the United States, what I sense is a thin veneer of Christianity that is really little more than the civil religion of um, mm. kind of American nationalism that has very prominent religious overtones. Yes. So I, I, I mean, David Bentley Hart, you know. Oh, he's he been a great be, friend he, to read. <laughs> he, he can be he can be polemic and hyperbolic, but he'll sometimes quick quip, you know, will Christianity ever make it to America? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know okay. he it's says over, that. That's actually pretty funny. Stated, but but there is a kernel of truth in that. There's um, I feel as though there's a, a large number of people, millennials and Gen Z, that I interact with, that are they're actually not. What they are disinterested in is a shallow Christianity. Yes, but what they're very interested in is a deep one that can handle mystery and paradox and transformation, mm-hmm. and overcoming dualistic or either or thinking. And I, I'm always struck by how many people I run into who are outside of the church who actually really enjoy talking about Jesus in the way yeah. that some of these holy fools might. It's yeah. almost as though well, it hits the deep human experience. Yeah, you've said a couple of things there. Um, first of all, the idea of holding truth within a paradox um, to understanding that, well, that if you're interested in, in, in not shallow little cliches of certitude, mm-hmm. but you're, in, you're interested in something that is very deep, very reflective and very thoughtful. Well, the good news is Christianity has a long history in that. Mm-hmm. Again, it sounds like I'm just so negative on American evangelicalism. Maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it, if so, I've I've earned the right to be such. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. But 
<laughs> so, so you may not find within American evangelicalism that which would be described as comfortable with paradox and mystery and deeply mm. reflective. And yet there are whole traditions that are centuries long of Christian faith that is exactly that. So sometimes people just may need to look a little further afield. Um, so I wanted to say that. And what else? We, we, you mentioned... Um, you said, you said They're not interested else. in a shallow Christianity. They want a deep oh, one. Well, and also you mentioned how even people that don't self-identify, mm-hmm. many people anyway, who don't self-identify as a Christian still find Jesus mm-hmm. appealing Mm-hmm. And fascinating. And this is something I'm keenly aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be a critic of Christianity over its 2,000 year history isn't, let's, let's be honest, it's not hard. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, anybody can do that. And I'm fine with it. I'm not, I'm not here to try to unnecessarily defend the faith that I adhere to as far as its long history and how it's been present in the world. Um, on the other hand, I would I would say I, I would alert people to this little pithy quote from uh, Rene Girard. Girard oh, yeah. said, "Voltaire and his successors only criticized Christianity with Christianity." Oh, that's good. <laughs> that, that is such a brilliant insight. Meaning <laughs> that those that bring some sort of moral critique to Christianity or whether they are aware of it or not, using the moral capital derived from Christianity to bring that critique. That in essence, what is being said is Christianity isn't Christian enough, to which I just want to say, okay, amen, pray for us. (laughs) But uh, also, even among the most virulent critics of Christianity, those that are operating perhaps not in good faith, they're just simply out to attack Mm -hmm. it. they refrain from attacking Jesus. Jesus seems to be above the oh, fray, not because they're afraid to, but because it just doesn't ring true. It's it's just somehow people say this one, this Jesus right. of Nazareth, is the innocent one. Mm-hmm. This one is the holy. So Christians, you know, we assert that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Well, in one sense, that's already present. I mean, isn't Christ already the judge? Right. In the sense that don't we look at Christ and say, well, this this is the one that is the, the standard, the rule. This is the perfect life. This is the holy life. Now and you're so, starting to sound like Bart, the judge judged yeah. in our place. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what I want to do... In my preaching, in pastoring, and if I function in any way as an apologist mm. or an evangelist, is simply bring people back to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I feel no compulsion to to try to close the deal and bring and make people or try to coerce people into having some sort of pledge of faith to Christ. Mm. For me, it's enough to present Jesus as I have found him, both in experience and in the Gospels, sure. and then just stand back and let Jesus win the day. Because I do believe he's that fascinating, that attractive. Absolutely. That attractive. 
I have two more things, if you don't mind. And then uh, sure. one's just about the book, one more thing. And then I have a fun question for you. That I like fun questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got to finish with something like that. The final chapter of your book was, um, I guess, yeah, it was gorgeous. It was beautiful in its, in its imagination about what could be coming next, about the future of the church. I could obviously hear some echoes of Brueggemann in there about hopeful critique and prophetic imagination. And it reminded me of a parable, in all honesty. It reminded me of Matthew 13, where it says, the teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom is like the owner of a storehouse who goes into the storeroom and pulls out both treasures old and new. And I think that's something that I notice is that some people want to see a whole new church and others yeah. want to see one that's old, just like all that's come before. But there's something about that dynamism of like, what's a, what about a mix of the old and the new? And obviously your last chapter talked about that quite a bit. And I'd love to hear you talk about the prophetic imagination about having a church that's a mix of old and new. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I make, I do not conceal the fact that I am enormously influenced by Walter Brueggemann. Uh-huh. Uh, I come to know him. He's become a friend, and I, I have nothing but accolades mm-hmm. for Walter Brueggemann. What a great man. And what a, I mean, I just want to say, you know, what are we going to do with the Old Testament if we don't have Walter Brueggemann to help <laughs> us with it? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I, his influence on my life is enormous. Prophetic Imagination was the first book that I read of his, and it's you know it's one of a handful of seminal books that that there's mm-hmm. kind of a you know there's before I read this book and after because it it sort of changes it's a game changer as we say, mm. um, and yeah I, I do I mean here's a new thought I mean I just shared this last night with our worship team um, they rehearse on Thursday nights and you know I'm a pastor for forty years now of one congregation. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't hang out with the worship team during the rehearsals hardly ever, but I, ever so often they'll ask me to come just give a little devotion. And so I did last night. Oh. Mm. And I talked to them about rootedness. Mm. Paul in Colossians talks about, you know, being rooted in Christ. And, and Jesus in his parable of the sower talks about the seed that falls upon the stony ground. The problem is, well, this depicts people who have no root in themselves. They believe temporarily mm-hmm. for a while, but then when it gets hard, it's gone because there's no root. Um, we need rootedness. Um, I, when I'm in, when I'm in um, wherever, specifically when I'm in Israel, I think about this. Mm-hmm. You see all these olive trees. And these olive trees, you know, olive trees, can, they don't live forever, but compared to humans, they do. Um, <laughs> I mean, they can live. They, there are olive trees that have been dated as 4,000 years old. I mean, think about that. That's amazing. And, okay, so, so here's an olive tree that has roots that are 1,000 years or more old. And yet every year it's producing the olive, the fruit mm. that's new. Mm-hmm. Ancient roots, new fruit. So, uh, of course, it does us no good. I mean, we can't, there is no golden age that we can return to. You can't return anyway, and there wasn't Mm -hmm. a golden age. Um, 
So, you know, if you think, oh, you know, if I just could have lived, you know, some people are fascinated by, you know, the 13th century Europe, the time of St. Francis. Others, you know, are, are mesmerized by the pre-Constantine early church. And they just, well, uh-huh. if I could go, well, you can't go back. Um, but we, we don't need to. We need to be present within our own time, facing our own unique issues, mm-hmm. bringing forth fruit that that brings healing and hope oh, yes. to our present moment. But we do so while remaining deeply rooted. So, I mean, I want to, I want to, I'm not obligated, for example, to agree with everything mm-hmm. that we find in the Christic tradition. Uh-huh. I am obligated to be generally familiar with what they have said oh, and yeah. to operate that at least in my thinking to account for it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, people ask, what is Word of Life Church here in St. Joseph, Missouri? What is it like? I don't know how, I don't have a pithy little description of what we are. I do know that on the surface, if you just if you just come in and look casually on a Sunday morning, you would say it's a it's a fairly contemporary church. Mm-hmm. But if you stayed very long at all, you go, wait, 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 wait a minute. They're using ancient creeds, mm-hmm. ancient prayer books. They're engaging in the practices of the great tradition that go back almost to the very beginning of the church. So I think that really is where the hope lives, not, not in mm. more abundance, but not in um, where, where you feel like you have to, everything has to be uh, made up anew in the spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's the kind of shallowness I think that people find off-putting. So ancient roots, new fruit, I think that's where our hope lies. At least that's, that's what I'm convinced. And that's what I'm Mm -hmm. leaning in. That's a beautiful image as well. The old roots, they're still producing new fruits every year. Uh, Or, 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 you know, if you want to use a different (laughs) vegetation, you can talk about, you know, uh, old vine. I've got a, somebody gave me a really nice bottle of wine and something, but I kept the bottle for our 40th anniversary. Oh, lovely. Sante Reserva, uh, Brunello de Montalcino. And part of the thing that part of what makes this wine so good is it's old vines. Oh, gorgeous. And so maybe, (laughs) you know, you have a vintage every year. You know, the grapes aren't Mm -hmm. old. The grapes are every year, every year, every year. But the vines are old. So new fruit from ancient vines, ancient roots. Amen. (laughs) For the, uh, Brian, I'm actually on the way out of, doing youth ministry for about 20 years now. And I've that's, that's a long stint of youth ministry, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's had its ups and downs, but you know what? Yeah. I I've always dragged in figures from church history, uh, references, Aquinas or Bonhoeffer is somebody everyone should know, obviously. Right. Even Brueggemann. I love talking about the prophets and obviously you reference the prophetic tradition in some ways about the past two years as the world's been ablaze, as you say, there's been a, a resurgence of protests and parades and mm-hmm. all these things. And it's so fascinating to say, Oh, this is actually guys, good news. This is a part of the tradition. We're all called yeah. to be contemplative activists. This is, this is where we help 
be present and help well, the Hebrew kingdom. prophets pioneered this this engagement in self critique. That is bringing critique upon your own society. Oh. And I mean, that's yeah. that, in, in in the ancient literature, the first people to do that are Amos and Micah and mm-hmm. Isaiah and people like that. So that's we're in that lineage, and Jesus is the apex. Of course, the culmination of Hebrew prophetic tradition. So, sure. yeah, that's part of who we are. But they even get it, and they seem right. inspired by it. And that's, I think, in some ways, if I can be honest, Brian, uh, your life story and the things that you write and the, the way that you preach, in some sense, instills a sense of place that that I can do it too, because yeah. it's it's rare to come across someone such as yourself that seems so anchored in the ancient tradition yet is still trying to stay new and present to the world that we have today and i hope good things happen to you throughout all of this advent and and into the next new year but if i can three last questions all right now well thank you that was very kind of you oh thanks now i Understand that you're also a cinephile. You love movies, it seems. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a little. I have my I have my tastes. Sure, uh, but, but I don't claim to be an expert. I mean, I, there's a few areas like I I'll stand my ground and say I think I know this pretty well. Movies, I'm always a little in, bit intimidated by, but okay. I do have I do have my directors that I love. Uh, that's part of it. So the question is. Uh, what would, from your gut, as quick as you could, what do you think are three movies that are not Christian movies that every Christian should see? Mm. I think you, <laughs> The Ballad of Buster Scrubs, fairly new, released directly to Netflix by the Coen the Brothers. The Coen Brothers, yeah. Uh, a couple of Jewish filmmakers who are, they just don't know how to not make a brilliant movie. Uh-huh. Uh huh. If not that one, that one's that one's interesting. It's all set in the American West. It's six vignettes. Some are funny, some are tragic, mm-hmm. but they all deal with the theme of death. They all deal with the theme. I've oh, watched it. I don't know how many times. Um, and then what's the other one? A a, a simple, not a simple. A it's a simple man with uh. No. Is that what it is? It's almost Another like a cor- modern Jobish story. It's, it, 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 it ends. Well, I don't want to say how it ends because people might. <laughs> but it ends very similar to the way the book of Job ends. That's true. Is it? Is it I, don't, I don't know if that's the right title. Is it a simple man? I, let me quickly. Somebody. <laughs> I saw that one as well. And it's a strange, dark humor all along the road. But but I think it, it's, it has all kinds of Christian themes. Cohen Brothers... Google to the rescue. Yeah. Um, yeah. A serious man. Oh, a, a serious, serious man in 2009. I knew, I knew a simple man wasn't correct. A serious man. Now, okay, that, but then, but then we'll, get, we'll get really serious, and that's the Terrence Malick films. Um, oh, Tree man. of Life, which, which I have, I don't know how many times I've watched it. 20. Really? I even, even at one point, I've done a podcast on it. I mean, I was a guest on someone's podcast to try to walk them through a tree of life. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I even, one Sunday evening, we showed it in our sanctuary, and I sat on the front row with a microphone and just kind of like, <laughs> I, I gave commentary through it to help people, because people said, I can't quite oh, get Oh, that's this lovely. Movie. Okay. And so I did that. And then their, 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 uh, Terrence Malick's most recent one, um, A Hidden Life. Oh, that's a profound one. In yeah, World War II, one. absolutely. Yeah. So that, and he's, he's, I think he's making, you remember the scene in a, in a hidden life where you have the artist who's mm-hmm. painting scenes from the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. And at one point he says, uh, I, I have yet to paint a true Christ. I, I've lacked the courage, but someday I will paint a true Christ and then I will step back. Wow. You know who that is? That's Terrence Malick talking about himself. He's, he's like 80 years old now. He's making his final move, his final film. I think it's entitled um, Where the Wind Blows or something like that. Okay. But it's on the life of Christ. I, I think he's, he's making, he, he, this is his attempt to paint a true Christ. Wow. And it will be his last So Cohen Brothers, Terrence Malick. Oh, and I got one more. I Go for one it. One more. It's called Calvary. Now there might be. I a, recently there, saw that. That there might me. be. There might be dozens of movies called Calvary. This is the Irish one that has Brendan Gleeson mm-hmm. starring as a Catholic priest in Ireland. Uh, I just, I just. Now it, it, that 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 film was so good that I brought our our entire leadership team over to my house and we watched it together and discussed wow. it. Now it's not the kind of movie you could show in a church. <laughs> That's true. It is, it is. It has plenty of profane aspects, but it's a serious film that does a very good job of uh, showing what it looks like to be maybe a faithful pastor in a very difficult age. That's true. So, so a serious man, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Tree of Life, a Hidden Life. And uh, Calvary. Those are five. I gave you five. Oh, that was amazing. You get extra credit then. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll finish this up, man. Thank you so much for your time. This was a real joy. Oh, I I, I had a good time. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and um, I hope that we can maybe catch coffee in person at some point in life. That'd be where really. Are you? I don't really know where fun. you live. Where do you live? I'm actually just outside of Philly. Uh, I've mm-hmm. run into. Walter Brueggemann, actually out here on the East Coast before, I've interacted with Shane Claiborne quite a bit, yeah. and uh, I don't know, it's it's a good area. I hear I hear from Shane regularly. I'm going to do his radio programming with him here. I don't know, in the next week or two. Fantastic. So Shane's a great guy. Shane's a, Shane's a real Christian. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm trying, but I think I think Shane might be a real Christian. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Let me finish this up. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope to hear from you again. Thank you, Brian. All right. God bless you.